good evening. Uh, welcome you, uh, welcome all of you to have joined the session, the, you know, another episode for Thinkers 50. Uh, in fact, we are in the middle of a very uh, somber situation in India right now. Uh, and I thought I must pay my respects and homage to people who are losing their lives. I think it's been a terrible, uh, terrible time in India. We are going through a very tough phase. And I pray uh, that all of us uh, get out of this unscathed and each one of us actually are safe and sound and uh, that's where it is. In fact, uh, uh, it's been a terrible day for me since morning. In fact, I lost my favorite uncle uh, today a few yard, uh, hours back because of uh, COVID. And I can see that it is a, it's a terrible situation around. Uh, and I empathize with everybody who's going through this and going through this turmoil. Uh, but hopefully, uh, but then the world has to go around. We have to continue with our conversations. We have to really see how we can make the world a better place. And we have to continue to make our contributions. Uh, without further ado, I would like to move ahead uh, with the conversation with a very special guest, uh, Michael and Wright. Uh, in fact, uh, I've known Michael for at least a decade, decade and a half. Uh, and I think uh, it was Michael and Wright who was instrumental in uh, really pushing me into uh, TCI, uh, if Michael remembers. And in fact, uh, it was uh, Michael who for the first time asked me, why shouldn't you be on the board of TCI? So I did serve on the board of TCI. Uh, so that is the Competitiveness Institute. That's the uh, body which is actually a congregation, agglomeration, or a membership body for competitiveness professionals and cluster professionals. Uh, so have a very interesting history together. Uh, I've learned so much from him uh, over the years. I think uh, if I'm uh, not wrong, if I hazard to say he is uh, like one of the favorite people of uh, uh, MEP, that is Michael Porter. He talks highly about him. Uh, and I, I think uh, he's contributed his, his work as well uh, quite to a great extent. Uh, but at present, uh, he is uh, a professor at or professor in global business uh, at Demore McKim School of Business, if I get the pronunciation right. Uh, and based in Boston, uh, has a beautiful family, uh, three daughters who are all uh, going through their education. The elder one has done her uh, in uh, program at Harvard. The, Middle one is doing her program at Harvard, uh, and the younger one is still in high school. So that's that's what it, uh, he is. And of course, he's uh, worked extensively on issues uh, pertaining to competitiveness, regional economic development, and international strategy. Has been a professor in Hong Kong University. Uh, has done some tremendous work across the board. And uh, of course, like we've had some amazing conversations. But without further ado, I have to go into this. Like uh, Michael, thanks a lot for joining us today. It's been a pleasure and honor to have you today with us. Uh, at this uh, interaction. Thank you, Ahmed. It's always uh, a pleasure to to be with you. Although, uh, again, as as you indicated, it's a it's a very somber time uh, in India and and the rest of the world. Um, yes, we have known each other for for a long time, and we we both have the distinction of having hosted the global uh, conference of the Competitiveness uh, Institute in in different years. And one of the reasons why I was pushing to get you on the uh, TCI board, the Global Competitiveness Institute, is that I really admire the work that you're doing. And quite frankly, the work that the Indian Competitiveness Institute is doing is in many ways a benchmark uh, for other people looking at competitiveness around the world. Uh, so again, it always I always find it very interesting and, and exciting uh, to, to be with you. Uh, thank you, Michael. Thanks a lot for the kind words. But just, just let, let's get here started with the conversation. Uh, Michael, uh, what we are seeing in the world today is something stunning. Uh, 
the world has come to a standstill. Uh, we are going through a massive turmoil. Uh, and it has its own implications on uh, how the globalized world functions. Uh, and what do you think is really happening? How do you think uh, this is really going to pan out over the next few years? What are the effects that we can actually have of this on businesses, on economies over a period of time? Well, I think there, there are a number of things going on. I mean, clearly, uh, COVID is, is around the world. It's affecting everyone. And it is one of the downsides of globalization uh, because however it started, the pandemic spread through a global transport network that connects virtually all countries. Uh, and again, as you indicated, I mean, my heart goes out to all my friends in India who have suffered, lost friends or family members and are having their lives and livelihoods uh, disrupted. And around the world, COVID is forcing countries to make difficult choices, not only domestically, but also in terms of how connected with the rest of the world that they want to be or, or even can be. Um, and in, in my view, when it comes to COVID, what happens in India is actually of critical importance to the rest of the world. Um, in addition to my professorship, uh, actually, over the last, I just relocated to the U.S. In, in July of last year. And for the previous 24 years being based in Asia, the vast majority of my time has actually been spent as a consultant to governments on economic development and to major corporations on their international strategies. And when we work with our corporate clients on their response to COVID, we had predicted that in the developed world, there would be at least two major waves and that in a number of developing countries, what would happen is that we would wind up with a situation where COVID becomes virtually endemic. Uh, and unless a country has the public health system to really get on top of it to the point of uh, almost eradication, that these countries would serve as reservoirs. And as long as there were significant reservoirs of the disease, that it would dramatically impact uh, travel, trade, just how business is carried out um, over the long term. And in fact, one of my fears now, which not a lot of people seem to be talking about, is that if these reservoirs of COVID persist uh, for long enough, there's a chance that a new strain will emerge through the mutation process that may actually um, not, be, uh, not be protected uh, with the current vaccines. And if that takes place, then the entire world is virtually back to square one. So, uh, I mean, in my view, if India in particular, but other developing countries need help in managing the crisis, ask for it because the world has a clear stake in getting this disease uh, under control. And uh, again, you know, what I see with regard to COVID is that we will have uh, ongoing restrictions on travel. We hopefully will wind up with countries that where vaccination is sufficient enough to allow some uh, travel and interaction that in other places from a business standpoint, um, there'll be a certain ability to do uh, business remotely 
uh, as has uh, exploded. But uh, again, as long as the pandemic persists and until we can get really massive portions of the world's population uh, vaccinated and, and safe, it's going to continue to take a, an ongoing uh, personal, uh, personal toll, healthcare toll on countries around the world. Michael, I'm sure you must have looked at some data around this as to how long this would last or how long vaccination would take. Well, what's your view as to when do you think before this becomes an endemic uh, and do we have time to stop it? Like at what point in time if this certainly goes into a different oblivion or a different situation? Yes, uh, the, the, the short answer is, is nobody knows. And the reason for that is I think at this point in the U.S., um, roughly 30% of the population has received at least one uh, injection of, of the vaccine. I think in India, it's under 2%. So we're talking about, you know, billions and billions of people uh, that have yet to be immunized. And although the vaccines uh, on the market today, at least the first uh, indications are that they're effective, uh, the reality is we, we don't know. And we don't know if the virus can mutate at a rate that uh, will outstrip our ability to, to vaccinate. Clearly, just over the last couple of months, there have been strains that uh, have emerged that are more contagious than the, uh, than the original uh, than the original virus. And whether or not it continues to mutate uh, in that direction is, is a major cause for concern. And quite frankly, no one knows the answer to that. But just, just to add to your point, you know, like India is close to about 10% for single dose and about 2% uh, for uh, both the doses or fully vaccinated people. So hopefully we are able to really you know, push it forward. But going back to a very important point that you were saying, you know, like, uh, as you would always say, like globalization is something which can be a tool for great good. And of course, there could be challenges. Like what we are really seeing is uh, COVID is an example of how globalization can actually have an impact or how travel can have an impact. But I think this problem can only get solved through global endeavors as well. It is not something which is an individual effort or it is going to be one country solving it. How do you really see this globalization coming forward or resolving this problem uh, into the future? I, I think that uh, with COVID, it's coming in stages because given the, the nature of domestic political realities, the countries that can are ensuring that their citizens are vaccinated uh, before uh, worrying too much about the rest of the world. And so my hope on that count is that, you know, in the developed world, uh, there'll be a movement as, as fast as possible to get the bulk of the population uh, vaccinated to the point uh, where the officials feel, feel more comfortable and more politically comfortable with uh, thinking more globally. Uh, that's, again, this particular disease. But what uh, the whole episode has shown is the necessity for sharing of resources and most importantly, sharing of information. And quite frankly, I'm not sure that that's a lesson 
that is going to be put into effect. Because there are countries around the world that for their own reasons um, don't share information. And uh, in this case, um, you know, that's where the, the virus spread from. And there's no particular uh, signs that information from some countries will be shared uh, quicker if there's another uh, outbreak of another disease at some point in the future. So I think it is uh, incumbent on, you know, all of us to uh, put together the global efforts that we can, but realize that the global information system is only as good as the information that national governments allow into it, which means we have to uh, have contingencies or we at least need to think about contingencies in case the information comes too late for us to take effective preventative action. But what, what you're saying, uh, Michael, here is that we, we need to be more respectful in terms of how information is shared and how quickly that information is shared. Well, what do you think would be the reason that we, countries might not be doing it? Because I think it just makes perfect sense that information asymmetry is removed into this situation because that will help in solving the problem uh, much quicker and getting the world back to normal. Um, again, that seems very logical, but quite frankly, in dealing with many countries, and I've worked in about 40 different countries around the world, uh, logic uh, is not always what rules the day. And unfortunately, uh, while again, we can try to improve our international information systems, uh, this almost invariably is done through multilateral organizations. And if you've ever been inside some of these multilateral organizations, they can only move at the speed and the direction that the individual member states allow them to move. Uh, so the multilateral system such as it exists uh, is the best we have maybe, but it is imperfect and it's not going to become perfect anytime soon. And so Michael, as we are really looking at the situation, you know, like it also seems that the global order is due for a change. Like there could be huge sets of changes that might actually happen. Because if you really look at uh, during the last pandemic, like when the Spanish flu happened, followed by the world wars, uh, there was a new, uh, what I call, a set of institutions that came up. There was a new global order, order that came up, which, last, which has been there with us for a long time. How do you think that this could really propel a new order that might actually happen in the next, how the global institutions operate, how countries coordinate? Well, what is your anticipation for that? Well, I think there are a few things uh, that are changing uh, the global order. I think that one of the things that the pandemic is doing is it is causing countries, individuals, organizations, to rethink how they engage internationally and to rethink their contingency plans, uh, to rethink their networks, to rethink um, how they operate. And uh, again, from a corporate standpoint, it means thinking about resiliency. It's thinking about uh, you know, not producing all in one country. It's distributed supply chains. It's uh, multiple sourcing. It's something that tends to be expensive, 
uh, but companies, at least in the short to medium term, will do so. Whether they will forget uh, after a five to seven year period is, is an open question. Um, but another thing that COVID is, is doing, particularly because of the, uh, the differential impact on different countries, is that it may be accelerating uh, what was already uh, starting to happen as uh, a shift in, in a world order uh, where basically, I, I won't say decline or a relative stagnation in the traditional uh, Western powers and a, uh, an ongoing uh, rise uh, within Asia, uh, even with the problems that Asia has had uh, through, through the pandemic. Um, but that's also, I mean, I think the COVID crisis may accelerate that. Uh, it's also potentially accelerating uh, a decoupling and a regionalization rather than globalization of, of the world economy. And again, I'll speak in areas that I'm, I'm more expert on. Uh, if, if we combine that, for example, with the, the tensions that we see between the US and China, and, and China's uh, emergence, that on its own is clearly uh, something that is shifting uh, the balance. Um, because the tensions, of course, predate COVID and they predate Donald Trump's election. A lot of people place the US-China tensions and this notion of potential decoupling uh, with Trump's election, but it actually goes back years earlier. I mean, China announced its Belt and Road Initiative in 2013 and its Made in China 2025 program, which basically aims for China to achieve world leadership in key industries and technologies. That announcement was in 2015. And both of those are efforts designed in part to increase uh, China's independence from Western markets and technology, uh, but also to increase its influence in the rest of the world. So China basically started down that road of decoupling uh, years before Trump was elected. It's just that people really didn't talk about it until uh, Trump made it an issue. Um, and even there, actually, decoupling isn't the right word. Uh, I've been studying, as you know, China's economy for nearly 30 years now. Uh, and China's economy has never been fully coupled with the rest of the world. Yes, China's opened substantially since you know, 1979-80, but it's still among the most closed economies in the world for trade in goods, trade in services, and for foreign investment. So what China's done is what I call selective globalization, opening up just enough for it to get access to international markets for its own goods, and to attract the types of investment that it wants to help develop the country, but at the same time, staying closed in other areas. So this notion that we were hearing about a couple of years ago that China's the champion of globalization and working through international forums, you know, that's just not supported by the facts. Uh, China picks and chooses carefully where it wants to open and where it, it chooses to stay closed. Right. So just for the audience, like, uh, what do you think are the areas where, where you think China is really focusing on opening up and some of the sectors that they would be really looking at uh, going into the uh, next decade or so? 
Okay. Um, one area that China is opening more in is financial services. And this is for three reasons. Number one is it wants the finance and it wants the financial expertise that goes with it because financial resources in China are still uh, poorly allocated. And in fact, if you look at a number of the Chinese unicorns, uh, Alibaba, Tencent, uh, DJI, in their early days, they actually relied on venture capital funding come from, coming from the United States uh, because China didn't have a really developed venture capital uh, system. So the financial sector is one where China believes it can control and limit the influence of foreign companies while gaining access to the capital and the expertise that it needs to improve its own financial uh, sector and to fund its own tech-based companies going forward. So that's one area. Another area is environmental technologies. Uh, China is serious about improving the environment. China is serious about being more efficient when it comes to uh, fuel uh, types of energy. And so uh, companies that are in uh, environmental technologies or energy efficient uh, vehicles are finding an open door. I mean, Tesla was allowed a 100% a foreign-owned uh, auto company in China, and it's doing pretty well. And it was allowed to do that because it was seen as bringing a more advanced technology that China wanted to have in country and, and wanted to learn from. Um, and so if one looks at the, the latest five-year program, and if one looks at the, the Made in China 2025 program, what we see is that there are several industries in which China has targets to limit the foreign share first of the China market and then actually of global markets uh, over a finite time frame, But in order to get there and in uh, sectors, industries, technologies that China doesn't believe it has a realistic chance at present as emerging as a leader, it's actually being quite encouraging. So when people ask me, is China opening or is China closing? I say yes, because it's done on a very sector specific, almost case by case basis. There were some sectors that were closed in China 20 years ago that then China started to open up that China is now closing back down on because it feels it doesn't need the foreign companies, or that it's critically important that China becomes self-sufficient. Uh, so in fact, the, the 14 five-year program, which was just released in early March, is a program for opening in some sectors and trying to make China much more uh, self-sufficient in other sectors. So that's a very interesting thing, but just one point, you know, like the rise of China, uh, which is important for their population without a doubt, like it has brought prosperity to its people. Um, but then it is also being seen or perceived by many countries as a, a global threat or a security uh, threat. Why does that actually happen? Uh, how do you really uh, make, make people understand that 
it is about the rise of an economy. Why should it be perceived as a global threat? Or there is something more to this? Well, I think that, you know, again, there are two sides of, of a coin. Um, China, through selective globalization, has done enormously well. Uh, and in fact, you know, our estimates in, in my, my 2017 book that we wrote on foreign investment in, in China was that the system, including the supply chains, distribution networks, et cetera, driven by foreign invested enterprises, accounts for about a third of China's economy. So it's massively, massively benefited. And foreign companies have benefited as, as well. In some of GM's difficult years, more than 100% of global profits were actually made in, in China. So it, it's not been a, a, a one-way street. And there has been a lot of good that's come out of that. But at the same time, when uh, other countries see what they view as aggressive moves in the South China Sea, when the current uh, round of uh, diplomacy, where when countries have objected to some of what has been going on within China, uh, they've been hit with uh, economic sanctions, uh, with quite aggressive rhetoric from uh, normally reserved uh, diplomats, they view the peaceful rise of China as a hypothesis, not a conclusion. Because the fear is that China, with respect to most other countries, although I'm sure the view in India is quite different because of territorial disputes that are longstanding, uh, countries who don't have uh, territorial disputes with China have viewed China's rise as largely peaceful, but at a time when China knew it could not stand up militarily uh, against the US in particular and the West in general. And when China reaches the point that it can, then the question is, will China's behavior change? And some of the aggressive diplomacy that we've seen, some of the unilateral moves in disputed international waters uh, give rise to, to fear. And that fear uh, is part the fear of the unknown, but in part it's generated by China's behavior. Uh, so again, the peaceful rise of, of China is in my view still a hypothesis, not a conclusion. And so if you say it is a hypothesis or what, but then there's also this thing called the quad that is emerging. So you have uh, uh, India, US, Australia and Japan trying to come together so that that could also be seen as something dangerous by the Chinese, uh, right or um, wrong? Well, yes, in that, uh, again, if you, if you sit in Beijing and not think about the China threat, but the US threat, you have the US with uh, military allies and bases in South Korea, uh, in Japan, uh, within easy uh, reach of China. You have a U.S. Seventh Fleet that could shut down uh, China's oil imports from the Middle East in about 45 minutes uh, if, it, if it chose to. And you have from time to time, you have politicians in the U.S. standing up and talking about uh, the internal situation in China and the desire for regime change. So it's, it's very easy for me as, again, someone who's worked in China for many years 
to uh, be in Beijing and view the US threat as a much more clear and present threat than the China threat might be to the US. So again, in my view, part of the hypothesis, uh, which is why I say hypothesis rather than conclusion, is that in many ways, China is searching for security and freedom of action. And these are logical things for a country to, uh, to seek. In particular, a country like China, which from the 1840s to the 1940s was subject to uh, various uh, degrees of foreign domination. Uh, so I think there is uncertainty, there is lack of knowledge, and uh, and almost an orthogonal, you know, communication or miscommunication uh, between China uh, and the West. Because quite frankly, while the West doesn't understand China all that well, China does not understand the West all that well either. Uh, and one thing, as you say, you know, will. Uh, an alliance of US, Japan, Korea, Australia uh, counter that. And that's both economically and politically, right? Because the Belt and Road Initiative on China's part is in part uh, an initiative to uh, have greater economic cooperation and interaction with its neighbors, but it's also an effort to increase geopolitical influence. And again, there's nothing particularly sinister about that. It's a logical thing for China uh, to do. But it also shows that Japan, Korea, the US, Australia are not land powers, either economically or militarily or geopolitically in Asia. But India is. And in many ways, in both economic and geopolitical senses, what India decides to do may shape really the way the world goes. And I'm being serious about that because if India were to engage uh, in a positive and mutually beneficial uh, relationship with the Western powers, that does create a counterbalance uh, to China. If India, for whatever reason, were to fall into a China camp, then that dramatically shifts the landscape. And if India basically tries to stay outside of or above the fray, which it may well be able to do, then that creates a different uh, world order uh, as well. So uh, again, it's, it's a striking uh, situation because given uh, the, not only how COVID is affecting the West, but also how the domestic political situations, not only in the US, but in many European countries are driving them to look internally rather than externally. And in some senses, uh, perhaps disengaging uh, more from global uh, leadership, that this creates a vacuum. China views itself as, a, uh, as an optimistic, rising, confident uh, power. 
and it's seeking to fill that vacuum. And how that plays out depends not on just what the US does, but also critically on what Europe does, also critically on what India does. Michael, just, just trying to step back into uh, economics here. Uh, you know, like when you, when you talk about globalization, of course, like the rise of countries or uh, economies, like our economies who have done well, uh, it has clearly been, dri been driven by productivity improvements across the board, like whatever happened. Uh, but there are countries who have missed that boat, who have not really been able to understand that whole perspective of productivity and not get there. Uh, what drives that? Like, how, how did, say, China do it or how Europe has been productive in certain things or even the United States or maybe India in a certain set of things? What, what propels this movement? Well, it's, it's a few things. And, you know, clearly, you know, globalization has created huge benefits for countries like China, Singapore, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, uh, the former Eastern Bloc countries, uh, are now doing a number of them uh, quite well. And I mean, if we go macro macro, even with the recent challenges to globalization and disruptions in trade and investment, if you look back over the last you know, four or five decades, international trade and international investment have grown significantly faster than the world economy over the last several decades. And in many developing countries, the uh, foreign investment, foreign technology, access to global markets, and the fragmentation of global production chains have filled the gaps. So China was able to emerge as an export power without having to know what international tastes were, because it was the foreign multinationals that built up the export powerhouse. What China had to provide was initially you know, cheap labor, uh, a good set of rules and regulations, and access to uh, three major ports and the infrastructure that only in the early days was uh, 200 kilometers in. As late as 2000, I think it was 2005, 75% of China's exports were coming from 3% of China's landmass. So what it was able to do was recognize that if it just got the equation right to attract internationally mobile investment and only to do that within a small portion of the country, that it would be able to tap into global markets. Now, it hugely benefited in the fact that most of the advanced countries had already offshored those activities and that a very dense supply network had developed in the rest of East Asia, Japan, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, et cetera. But it realized that it was able to do so. So again, in order to tap into uh, one of the most dynamic aspects of the global economy over the last several decades, uh, countries that have done so basically chose to get involved in international trade, international investment, and were able to manage that process in a way that allowed them uh, not to you know, lose control. Because I mean, the fear always in developing countries is that the foreign uh, companies would become too dominant uh, locally. But those countries seem to have managed that system.
right? Uh, and again, as I mentioned before, our estimate is that uh, as of 2014, it's gone down a little bit since then, but roughly a third of GDP was traceable to foreign companies, their supply chains, distribution channels. And when we looked at U.S. companies, for every dollar of profit a U.S. company was making in China, the system that it was driving was adding $13 to China's GDP. Okay. So that's the upside. But, you know, there are downsides. Uh, and India has experienced downsides. Uh, it's experienced downsides in terms of, uh, in terms of environmental uh, damage and human catastrophe, in terms of uh, workers' rights. So India has certainly experienced uh, the downside. Um, but also India historically has not been as open to the upside. When I look at you know, China's economy and India's economy, and forgive me, because I know China much better than India, uh, you know, we remember in 1980, the two economies were the same size. And now it's like, what, four or five to one. And if I had to attribute the main reasons, again, as an outsider, so forgive me, um, I say one big part of it is urbanization, that China urbanized much, much quicker. And what urbanization has done in China is it has brought over 600 million people into reach of the global economy as both producers and consumers. Because at least in China, when you move people off of the farm, uh, in essence, it was zero value added. Uh, agriculture, in that um, China for decades slowed down the pace of mechanization of farms so that it didn't displace too many people from the farms. So urbanization and what that means in terms of accessibility of people, both as producers and consumers to the manufacturing and service economy, that's one piece of the puzzle. A second piece of the puzzle is education where, of course, at the high end, uh, India's education is, is quite extraordinary in many dimensions. But if we look at things like, you know, basic literacy, numeracy, and, you know, high school level graduations, uh, China is, is way ahead of, uh, of India still. A third thing uh, was selective openness to foreign investment. And the ability, in part perhaps because it's a single party that's been in power since uh, you know 1949, but the ability to have a long-term strategy that allowed China to bring in foreign investment, foreign companies, learn from that process without losing control. Uh, and I think that you know that has been one of the things that China that other countries, even if they have a different situation and therefore have to have a different strategy, uh, can learn from China or even from countries like, you know, Malaysia, that foreign investment can be introduced without losing control if it's done carefully. But just two curious questions here from your comments, uh, Michael. Uh, one, one was that, of course, you've said urbanization has been a key driver. Uh, but then if you really look at in India, 30% of India is urbanized, China more so. 
Uh, but then, about of course, I just percent in China today. Yes, but and then it China's, was only about eighteen percent back when China started to open the economy. Okay, so it's the slow pace of urbanization. So what you're really saying is that urbanization does create very strong agglomeration effects for enterprises to really come in. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so th that that is one thing, and then the other thing, like what, what you've said is. Uh, is selective opening up of economy and things like how can India learn from this? India has recently uh, started thinking about like how it can actually look at China, how it can learn from China. Uh, but then if you really look at as to you, as you said, one is to five, India is probably two and a half to 3% of the world economy. China is close to about 10 to 11%. The divide is absolutely yawning. Uh, and at the same stage, uh, but it just simply cannot be a question of urbanization. There has to be something else that was happening there, or just selective opening? Uh, was it about the bureaucratic processes? Was it about policy? Because India has had some continuation of policy for the last 25 to 30 years on how India needs to really move ahead. So what was that something else as well? Well, it's, it's a few things. It's been a continuity at, at, of policy, but it also has been consistency of policy from the national to the provincial to the municipal governments. Uh, and again, because it's a one-party state. And of course, in, in India, the world's largest democracy, as companies look at India, they look at the different Indian states very, very differently. And again, in your work, you've highlighted many of, of the differences uh, in terms of level of development, infrastructure, but also in terms of whether business as a whole is you know, more welcome or less welcome. Uh, that still varies. Again, my clients, when they look at India, they look at India as, uh, as a number of almost different countries when it comes to uh, the operating environment and just the, the receptivity. Uh, so that's part of it. Um, another key part of it in the early days for China was Hong Kong, because Hong Kong was a place where the foreign investors were already quite comfortable and, uh, and Hong Kong provided a very easy access point uh, to China. And, and India doesn't have a Hong Kong. Uh, it really doesn't have a, as globally a connected city uh, within India as Hong Kong is and, and has been. And for some people, some people tell me that, you know, they go to Dubai uh, in order to get that type of connectivity linked to, to India. Uh, so that's, that's part of it uh, as well. Um, another uh, part of it is the, the East Asian system. China is enormously uh, or has enormously benefited from the fact that its near neighbors were one, two, or three steps ahead of it on the ladder. So that uh, activities that used to be done in Japan and then were done in Korea and then were done in Southeast Asia were already in the region and could be easily transferred to China you could transfer the um, assembly activity in manufacturing to China 
without having to transfer the entire supply chain. And India, again, is in a very, very different circumstance in terms of its neighbors. Uh, you don't have on your doorstep Japan to provide high-end components and technology and to have Japanese investors be able to come in and manage very, uh, very easily. Or Korean investors, one step or two steps ahead of China on that development ladder that were able to show, in a sense, China the ropes. Or uh, Southeast Asia, where a lot of the assembly used to do, that was getting to be a bit more expensive just as China entered the markets. Uh, so you don't have the same neighborhood. Uh, and you're not likely to have that same neighborhood. So if India were to, to try to duplicate what China did in terms of attracting and developing foreign investment, you would almost have to develop the entire East Asian system within India, right? And that's a hard thing to do. So China benefited in all sorts of ways. But does this mean that India can't do it? Maybe. Because the other thing, of course, is that if India tries now, when China emerged 1980s, 1990s, it wasn't competing against China, right? It's like, why do so many of the efforts to duplicate Silicon Valley fail? And why can't you just duplicate the model that Silicon Valley followed? It's in part because Silicon Valley wasn't competing against Silicon Valley. And it's tough to compete against Silicon Valley, right? It's tough to compete against China. But in the current situation, there are almost unprecedented opportunities for India. Number one, China is now much more expensive than it used to be. And even Chinese officials talk about decentralizing many forms of production. And a lot of the Belt and Road Industrial Park investments are actually being made by Chinese entities pushing certain aspects of production abroad. So that's new. A second thing that is new, uh, but of course impossible right now, is that as, uh, well, hopefully, uh, as the world settles down in a post-COVID uh, environment, Companies do understand that they need to be thinking about multiple locations, multiple supply chains. And so the notion of putting all the eggs in the one basket, that's a very, very risky thing. Now, of course, right now, that's impossible for, for India to capitalize on. But in the future, India may be one of the few places that could absorb some of the manufacturing uh, you know, second and third uh, supply chains. Another uh, thing, which again is, is unique in the current situation, is this uh, US-China tensions. And in a number of sectors, we are likely to see a bifurcation, a China sphere of influence and a Western sphere of influence. And that opens, again, potentially vast markets for uh, India. 
in consumer electronics, consumer electronics was one of the, is the largest category of US imports from China. It is one of the categories that the Trump administration did not put tariffs on. Why? Because there were not alternative sources of supply. Mm -hmm. If there were alternative sources of supply, that would have been the first sector where tariffs would have been applied. Um, so as the world starts moving more perhaps to a bifurcated uh, situation or a multi-situation, because in my view, there'll be some sectors that are not viewed as particularly strategic where it'll be a world market. There'll be others that are viewed as either important from a, an industrial policy standpoint or a security standpoint or a um, government relations standpoint at home as well as abroad where we may see bifurcation. And then there'll be others where it may fragment further. So, and that opens up an opportunity for India to fill a gap that may not have existed previously. Very fascinating, Michael. But then, you know, like, I have to ask you a question. Uh, when you talk about China, and of course, there are huge policy imperatives. They, were, they had a great neighborhood, uh, very successful neighborhood. They were able to move a certain parts of the supply chain because they were very close to very successful countries. But having said that, I think there must be a very significant role of enterprises in this. Like, how do you think, like when you talk about a globalized world, uh, it's about enterprises and how enterprises scale up. Uh, probably, uh, would, we write, would we be right in saying that India has possibly not seen that level of scale that we have been able to see in China? Oh, oh yes, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's straightforward. I mean, what we have seen in, first off, with respect to the foreign companies, um, the investments, of course, in, in China absolutely dwarf what's gone on uh, into India. So, you know, the number of companies that have done multi-billion dollar investments and have really developed uh, their own systems in China, and then all the spillovers that go with that, developing suppliers, developing distribution channel, channels, trading, you know, generations of, of managers, uh, that is, is now, of course, very far advanced in China. We also see, uh, though, the development of, of Chinese enterprises. You know, there was, and some of it planned. The big state enterprises do get massive state support. But, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, DJI, that, those were never part of any five-year plan. And what happened was that China basically created a body of commercial rules and regulations first for the foreign enterprises and then applied those to domestic private enterprises as well. And as China opened, just the pace of change and the opportunity uh, right in people's faces and the ability of people within the Chinese system to capitalize on those uh, to be able to get some bank finance, to be able to get access to markets, to be able to utilize a dramatically improved infrastructure 
I mean, when I fly from a Chinese airport to a US airport, I have to stop and think which is the developing country, right? Uh, and if you look at the main developed areas of China, the infrastructure is, is really good, not by developing country standards, but by world standards. And Chinese companies and Chinese entrepreneurs have been able to take advantage of this. And although we have one party rule, and although if uh, you're Jack Ma and you become too important, there's a crackdown, uh, there's been enormous freedom of action uh, for Chinese entrepreneurs. And right now, I mean, Shenzhen may be the most entrepreneurial city in the world. Uh, so we see that and it's been a market orientation, it's been a hunger, it's a view of opportunity, it's a, a view that you know, business success is a good thing, something to be valued, respected, uh, a very uh, dynamic uh, approach to the economy, which has now set off its own uh, and has its own innovative as well as entrepreneurial dynamic. And so, Michael, you know, like you're making some very important points, but then I have to uh, go back to one of the things that you said, that India possibly does not have its own Hong Kong. And then you've also said that uh, urbanization, then you've said Shenzhen and how those places built up. Which city possibly, could, could be a tough question or uh, whatever, but then which city in India could actually be developed into that direction so that we are able to create that entrepreneurial spirit to really play in the globalized world? Uh, because I think what you're saying is we are behind the curve in many, many ways at this point in time. Um, yes. Well, uh, again, and, you know, as an outsider, and of course, you know, India's cities uh, much better than I. But when I think about, you know, interacting from outside of India into India, so internationally in that direction, basically, I'm thinking Mumbai, I'm thinking Delhi. And for some sectors, I'm thinking Bangalore. And I tend to be a fairly knowledgeable person about business and the economy. And I don't see others as, you know, places where I'm going to be thinking of interacting with. So it's either those cities or, uh, I mean, Hong Kong in part worked for China because it was offshore. And it had different rules and, and regulations and operations. And I do see companies thinking about, you know, accessing India in part through Dubai, uh, which is very interesting. And if it's, again, it's suboptimal for the companies, it's also suboptimal to India, uh, for India. But, you know, again, anything that allows uh, one of the lead Indian cities to become more internationally connected, uh, more internationally receptive, um, easier places to live for foreigners. Um, you know, all the, all the dimensions, you know, anything that does that can only be an advantage for, for India. But at the same time, um, it's also going to either rise or fall with the attractiveness of the local market, the attractiveness and the capabilities of the local workforce, uh, the existence or non-existence of world-class infrastructure, and a, uh, a politically supportive environment at the national, state, and, and municipal levels. Mm -hmm. 
And Michael, you've made such very interesting insight with that one point, which I believe becomes a very strong uh, what I call reason as to how the globalized world operates or that actually gives a lot of credence to how the system operates and that's IP. Uh, and given there have been many acquisitions on China at points in time, but of course, if you really look at IP itself, uh, IP is an important factor as to how enterprises function, but there's also a thing that has happened because of the pandemic and suddenly people are talking about IP waivers and so on and so forth. Uh, how, how do you really look at this whole landscape in a system uh, which is one driven by China, a lot of acquisitions against it, but then there is this pandemic. Uh, how, how do you think this whole IP debate would actually open up? Because that could be a very important factor as to how enterprises really move forward. Well, IP is, is a very interesting uh, phenomenon. And it's, it's actually something that I studied uh, as long ago as, uh, as my doctoral student days. Because I mean, my first job out of college was in a research lab. My undergraduate degree was chemistry and physics. Uh, as an undergrad, I was working in one of, or next door to one of the labs where modern uh, genetic engineering was invented. I spent my first four years after, after college uh, doing corporate uh, R&D. So it's something that, that I've, I've looked at. And one of the things that's really interesting is that countries tend to protect IP once they start generating IP that they believe is commercially valuable. And my best example of this is Switzerland, which we tend to think of as you know, an IP paragon today. Well, the Swiss chemical and pharmaceutical industry were founded in the 1850s by people who fled Germany and France to get around the patent laws. And they settled in Basel, which was right on the border of both France and Germany. And that was the 1850s. And it wasn't until 1906 that Switzerland had a patent law at all. So it took Switzerland and the chemical, and it was pushed in the early days. The lack of a patent law was what the chemical and pharma companies in Switzerland wanted. But by 1906, they had developed the capabilities and their own intellectual property. And they said, hey, you know, we want to protect it. So in China, um, you know, the words, uh, the lines that I always used to use is, you know, when I arrived in China for the first time, one of my Chinese friends said, you know, you foreigners don't understand that in copy in China, rather, copyright is two words, not one word. Right. So it's copyright rather than copyright. And um, my second favorite line was the first pharmaceutical patented in China that was a product of modern genetic engineering was actually patented by a military hospital in Shanghai. And it was driven from the market within a year by 20 local knockoffs. So the notion there was if the PLA couldn't get protection for its intellectual property, good luck for the rest of us. But as China is now getting to the point where it is developing its own intellectual property and wants its intellectual property protected globally, it is, um, it is becoming more open to protecting foreign intellectual property in China. And it also realizes that lack of uh, intellectual property protection has been probably the main stumbling block 
to foreign companies putting more research and development uh, into China. So China's not going to become a, a paragon you know, uh, overnight, uh, but it, it is evolving, and it's evolving purely in a self-interested uh, fashion. Great, Michael. Uh, just to, you know, like, as all things have to come to an end, and we are just nearing the end of the conversation, but I do have one more question to ask you, uh, incidentally, too. The first one is that if you really talk about bureaucracy uh, in a, a globalized situation, and we, we have been, we did talk about it briefly uh, before the conversation, do you think bureaucratic processes probably possibly have an implication on growth of economies and how the globalized world as well functions? Oh, abs absolutely. And it, it does that at every level. Um, you know, I'm now back in the Boston area. Uh, in the Boston area, it took 15 years to rebuild one small bridge and to place two kilometers of highway below ground. 15 years. In China, 15 years ago, I designed for the city of Shanghai the basic land planning for an 86 square kilometer area to the west of the Hongqiao airport, the domestic airport in Western Shanghai. At that time, there were maybe 100,000 or fewer people living in that area. There are now about 1.6 million people or so uh, living in that area. Uh, and the economic and what's gone on in 15 years has been night and day. Okay. So that's just an example of, you know, bureaucracy, just execution. When we go to the global level, when I say let's not rely too much on the multinationals, I'll recount uh, an example from my own experience. And it's actually uh, an experience that a few other members of the Competitiveness Institute experienced. Because I remember being asked to give the keynote address, a 45 minute keynote address on regional clustering uh, for an UNCTAD conference, UN Conference on Trade and, and Development. Um, and Supachai uh, was, uh, was uh, head of UNCTAD at that time. He gave his opening remarks at nine o'clock, was ready to turn it over to me at 9.05. One of the delegates raised his hand. And all the delegates are above the people who work for the multilateral. The delegate uh, raised his hand in order to congratulate UNCTAD on the importance of the seminar. Then another delegate raised his hand. Then another, another, another. This went on through coffee break. Coffee break, another, 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 another. Lunch, another, 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 another. 4 p.m., I was asked to give a five-minute version of my 45-minute keynote address which I did, then one of the panels, one of the eight panels of experts drawn from all around the world who had been brought in for this conference, one of the panels was able to get on. Then at 5 p.m., 
5 p.m., all the interpreters pulled down their shades and left the uh, interpreters' booths, and then they couldn't continue. So this was multilateral bureaucracy. So we, we need to hope, we need to work through the multilaterals when we can, but we need to understand that that's the least efficient mechanism in this universe to get things done. So we have to, at a national level, try to get things done. We need to try to get things done with like-minded countries around the world where we can. And we need to use the multilateral forums when we have to. Oh, very, very interesting. But then just on a curious side note, like how would you really rate academic bureaucracy in this picture? Ah, well, I, perhaps since I'm now employed by a university, I, I shouldn't say so. But I'll say, of course, with my university and, and the ones that you're involved with, uh, Ahmed, I'm sure that they are exceptions. Um, but when I tend to talk to people about university bureaucracy, I tend to say, think about corporate bureaucracy, then think about government bureaucracy, then remove accountability, and that gives you university bureaucracy. Uh, but university bureaucracy is still a lot better than uh, multilateral uh, bureaucracy. Oh, I, I, also I also tell people that when you look to the universities for innovation, remember that until the COVID crisis, the primary means of education in most major universities hadn't really changed since about 1290 AD. So when we want innovation from the universities, we also have to be a little bit circumspect about that. Very fascinating, Michael. So at least we have structure of a bureaucracy or how the hierarchy works. But last but not the least, if I ask you to recommend two or three great books that people should read on aspects of globalization and stuff like which did you find are fascinating? Let me um, indicate a few and, and some old ones and, and some uh, newer ones. Um, one is a book that was written by Ray Vernon, a former Harvard professor, I think back in 1971, which is called Sovereignty at Bay. And it was actually an assessment of the pluses and minuses of US multinational activities around the world. And one reason why I suggest that book is that if we look, for example, at what multinationals like Google and Facebook and Twitter can do, I mean, they can change the course of elections. Uh, they have changed the course of elections. And when we think about individual companies with that type of power, we should be circumspect. Uh, that's one. Another one is um, The World is Flat by Tom Friedman. But Friedman only gets it half right. Friedman talks about uh, basically factor price equalization, forcing the wages of relatively unskilled and semi-skilled workers in the developed world to similar levels of people in the developing world. You know, that's his flat world. What Friedman doesn't write about is what I call the upside down T. Because the world that's flat 
is the world for people, companies, organizations, nations, and regions that cannot develop the innovation, creativity, and in some cases, intellectual property that captures the fascination and the dollars of consumers. For the people who, and the people, the organizations, the companies, the cities, the regions, and the countries that can do it, the world is a place of infinite opportunity because you are not restricted to your home resource base anymore. Production can be outsourced globally. IT can be outsourced globally. Backroom uh, processing can be outsourced globally. Finance can be gotten globally. So The Flat World is a great book to read, but you have to read into it what Friedman doesn't do, which is the flip side. That the globalization of the availability of resources and markets creates infinite opportunities for those who can capture the high end, can be the upside on the inverted T. Um, I think that The Competitive Advantage of Nations is still a very interesting book uh, on globalization, uh, even though uh, at that time that was published in 1990 and Japan and Germany were the heroes and the US and the UK were the sort of villains in terms of competitiveness. And almost before publication date, Germany and Japan went into virtually a decade of stagnation and the US and the UK took off. So although the book is incredibly valuable, and and of course I spent a lot of hours working on that project, uh, in terms of its predictive power, it didn't actually outlive its publication date, um, which was quite interesting. I will recommend my 2017 book, uh, Developing China, The Remarkable uh, Impact of Foreign Direct Investment, to just show what foreign investment can do. However, the great current book on globalization hasn't been written yet. And you and I ought to talk about how to get that done. Look forward, Michael. Uh, And thanks a lot for joining us for this conversation today. It was such a great learning experience. And I hope we are able to meet sometime soon over a cup of coffee or a meal, uh, and we are able to travel back again. Uh, Thanks a lot. Be safe, be well. God bless. Thank you. Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you. Thank you.